Well, for many years of my childhood, especially up until I was about the age of nine or so, I grew up next door to the country church that my father pastored. And as any pastor does, my father officiated many funerals at that country church. I can remember something, though, that my dad did frequently with me. I remember him several times taking me over to the church before the people arrived and thus before the service started because he wanted me to see the body in the casket. That's how I was raised uh, my childhood. There was a reason for that. He wanted those opportunities to help me understand that, first of all, death is a part of life in this fallen world. But even more than that, he wanted those opportunities to remind me that the soul of that person was no longer united to that body that was in the casket. Well, our passage today touches on that very subject, the state of the soul and the body at death. More specifically, it's a passage about the souls and bodies of true believers and what happens to them in the future when Christ comes to do what Scripture tells us He'll do, to gather the church to Himself at what is known as the rapture. It's in 1 Thessalonians chapter. It's a paragraph that runs from verse 13 to verse 18, actually. And this section of Scripture is one of the classic New Testament passages on this topic. Look down at verse 17 just for a moment. We won't cover this verse today. But it talks about being caught up together in the clouds. That verb caught up in the Greek is a term that hardly anybody has heard of, if you hadn't studied this, it's harpazo. That's the Greek verb translated caught up. But the Latin translation of this verb is rapturo, and it is from the Latin that we get our English term rapture, being caught up. Well, since this passage is dealing with the future, we are obviously touching on the subject of eschatology. It's an aspect, we could say, of biblical eschatology, which is the study of the end times. For many, this is the topic that they are most passionate about. In fact, for many, it is a passion that ends up being consuming. They love studying it. They love reading books about it, and all of that is fine, as long as they don't fall prey to those authors and those speakers out there who try to argue all the time that whatever various events are going on in the world are somehow fulfilling a questionable interpretation of biblical prophecy that they have. The ones to especially stay away from, for sure, are those who claim to know when the rapture is going to occur and when Christ is then going to come back to earth, and so on. Stay away from those. After all, Jesus himself, in his incarnation, did not know the timing. Matthew 24, verse 36, That day and hour no one knows, not even the angels of heaven nor the Son, but the Father alone. 
I'm just saying it's a wonderful study, eschatology. Just don't go too far in a focus on eschatology, especially if it's at the expense of neglecting basic principles of the Christian life and how we grow spiritually as believers and how we are to serve the Lord in this world. Now, of all the end-time eschatological events, no doubt it is the rapture of the church that seems to have generated the most interest and discussion in modern times, and that was true also for the young church at Thessalonica. They had questions about this event. So Paul addressed their concerns in this letter that he wrote to them, 1 Thessalonians, in this passage that starts at verse 13 of chapter 4. However, we will certainly find that the apostle did not give a detailed description of this event, and that's because of the reason he was writing to them about it. He was writing to them as a pastor in hopes of bringing comfort to them and not to stimulate unnecessary curiosity or to stir up discord. You can also say that about the other two passages in the New Testament that we believe are related to this event known as the rapture. One is John 14, verses 1 to 3. It's Jesus himself who touched on this future event, and it was his purpose when he did that to encourage his people, not stir up doctrinal controversy. John 14, verse 1 through 3, do not let your heart be troubled. You believe in God, you believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. It was for encouragement. That's true of 1 Corinthians chapter 15 as well, the great chapter on the resurrection of, of Christ and its meaning for the resurrection of believers, in verses 51 to 58, especially of 1 Corinthians 15, Paul mentions the topic, but for the same reason, to provide comfort and encouragement for believers, not to fuel a lot of speculations. So back to our passage. The specific concern on the part of the Thessalonians when it came to this event had to do with the deaths of some of their fellow believers. In other words, since since the time Paul had left that city, which he did, you know, he went there with Silas and Timothy and preached the gospel, founded a church, but then he had to leave the city. Since that time of leaving, and even after he was there teaching believers on many theological topics, including eschatology, since the time he left, some members of this church had died. It could have been due to persecution in some cases, but likely for many, it was just from natural causes. But regardless of the cause of death, and even though Paul had taught them some things about eschatology, including something about the rapture, they knew about it, there was still something about it that troubled them. Now, for one thing, they did wonder if perhaps they had missed it entirely, and that's because they were suffering persecution, which is the kind of suffering that God's people will experience during the future tribulation. But they had not expected to go through that period of tribulation. 
fact, I'll jump over and read 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. He says, with, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to Him, don't be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. It hadn't. So the persecution they were experiencing was not that of the end times or the future tribulation. It was merely the persecution that any believer or all believers might expect. And Paul had warned them about that. However, the bigger concern for the Thessalonians was, as I said, that some of their members had died. And so they wondered what would happen to them at this future event, those fellow believers. Their concern was not the destiny of the believers when they die. It was not questioning whether believers go to heaven or not. They understood that, but rather the relationship between the resurrection of the body and the rapture of living believers. When would those who had died before the rapture, when would they receive their resurrection bodies? Or would they miss the rapture altogether? By the way, this concern shows us something. These Thessalonians believed that the event called the rapture that's associated with his his parousia, his coming, they believed it was imminent. They lived that way with that attitude. It could happen in their lifetime. So Paul wrote this section of the epistle to alleviate the Thessalonians' grief and confusion and to reassure them as a pastor. Now, this section of eschatology consists of two paragraphs, actually. It starts at chapter 4, verse 13, goes all the way through chapter 5, verse 11. There's two paragraphs. The first paragraph is verses 13 and 18 through 18 at the end of chapter 4. That first paragraph offers needed instruction on this topic that we've discussing concerning the relation of their dead to the rapture. The second paragraph, chapter 5, 1 through 11, deals with the time of the known as the day of the Lord and the resultant need for watchfulness. What's interesting is Paul ends each one of those paragraphs with a similar practical exhortation. Look at verse 18 of chapter 4. After discussing the rapture, therefore comfort one another with these words. Chapter 5, after discussing some issues about the day of the Lord, verse 11, therefore encourage one another and build up one another. That was his purpose, you see. Now look at verse 13, which begins our section today. Note that the beginning of it is the conjunction but, or you might have a translation that says now, either one, that term indicates that a new subject is being introduced now. And as I noted with you, it's the subject of the Thessalonians' concern about those who had died. Now, how did Paul even know about that concern? He wasn't there. Well, you remember that he sent Timothy back to Thessalonica to check on them, so it was likely that Timothy, who returned to Paul with a report, told Paul about this concern they had. So Paul, in Corinth, wrote this letter back to Thessalonica, and he includes written instructions to settle their fears, to encourage those who were facing profound grief over this issue. Now today, we'll just be looking at verses 13 and 14. And this is a passage in which Paul, we'll call him Pastor Paul since he's writing that way, a passage in which he presents two contrasting types of grief. Here they are, 
Number one, grief from a worldly perspective. And number two, grief from a biblical perspective. Pretty easy. Two contrasting types of grief. Here's the first one, grief from a worldly perspective. Now, this begins with Paul's declaration of his pastoral concern for that church, verse 13. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep. Now, not only does the conjunction but signal a new subject, like I mentioned to you, but so does this phrase that follows, we do not want you to be uninformed. That phrase is found frequently in Paul's epistles as a formula of transition to introduce a new subject. And each time Paul uses that formula, he always includes that affectionate address, brethren or brothers and sisters. It it softens the expression just a bit. So he doesn't come across as as being dictatorial, a dictator, or so he doesn't come across as, as really writing to put them down because of their ignorance. No, he loves them. He cares for them. Nonetheless, in this case, the Thessalonians were deficient in their understanding about something. Deficient in their understanding about the rapture. And more specifically, they were missing information concerning, he writes here, those who are asleep. Now, this is a euphemism in Scripture that refers to people who have died. It is an appropriate metaphor for believers who have died because the death of our bodies is only temporary. Our death is not the final story. When we die, it's only our bodies that stop functioning, and those bodies still have a future. God is not done with them yet. So it's as if the body of a believer who has died has just gone to sleep. Now, this can be found elsewhere in Scripture, even in the Old Testament, Daniel 12, verse 2. Those who sleep in the dust of the ground, it says there, Daniel 12, 2. In John chapter 11, it talks about Lazarus, and it says, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, and then he died. Now, it is important to emphasize, though, that at death, our souls don't go to sleep. Our souls keep functioning. So this is not teaching the erroneous belief of what some call soul sleep. No, the Bible clearly points to a conscious existence of the soul or the spirit, it's the same entity, a conscious existence of the soul in heaven after our bodies have died, gone to sleep. Think of the thief on the cross and what Jesus said to him, truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. He didn't say, today, looks like your soul is going to go into soul sleep. Acts chapter 7, the death of Stephen, the first Christian martyr, we could say, in the the era of the church. Verse 59 of Acts 7, they went on stoning Stephen as he called on the Lord and said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. He was going to be with the Lord. Paul loved his ministry on earth because he knew it was helpful to people, but he was hard-pressed, he says, between that and going to heaven. Philippians 1.23, I have the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is so much better. One more, Revelation 6. We went through the book of Revelation on Wednesday nights, as you know, recently. In chapter 6, verses 9 through 10, it talks about the souls under the altar 
that John saw in this vision of the future, the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God, they weren't sleeping. Verse 10, and they cried out with a loud voice saying, how long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood? So it's only the body that's thought of as being asleep. And in that state, it can no longer interact with its earthly environment. But the spiritual part of man, the soul, the spirit, the soul departs at that moment to be at home in the presence of the Lord. Yet, since the body is only asleep, it will be awakened. And that will be confirmed later in verse 16. And this is what Paul did not want the Thessalonians to be uninformed about, the destiny of deceased Christians, those whose bodies were asleep. So in verse 13, he explains his reason for clearing up their information. Verse 13, so that you will not grieve, meaning grieve in a certain way. Now that verb grieve is in a form, it's the present tense form, and it it, it means in this form that it's in here, to be sad, exactly what we would think it would mean, to be sad or distressed due to loss. But when it's in the negative, when it's in the present tense put with that word not, that's a way in the Greek of saying stop doing what you're doing. In other words, the wrong kind of grieving was going on. And therefore, it was something that needed to stop. They were not to keep grieving and sorrowing in the way they were. And as noted earlier, the main element of their grief was their fear that those who had failed to live until the rapture occurred would be in this unfixable state. They would have this unfixable unfixable disadvantage even when the rapture happened or maybe miss it altogether. In other words, they thought there was a special advantage to being alive when it happened. That part they understood. Those who are alive when the Lord comes, we're we're rapture, we got that. But what about them? This also lets us know, again, that they believed it was going to happen in their their lifetime. They lived with that sense of imminence. Therefore, their grief was not the sorrow that is natural when we lose someone we love, it was not the natural sorrow about their own loss. It was grief for the supposed loss of the ones who had died. Those people had lost something. They were grieving over what they were concerned that those deceased friends and loved ones would not experience. So the apostle let them know that that grief, that grief is unfounded and not even appropriate for Christians. Because it's the type of grief that's found in those who live with wrong thinking. They they don't love the truth. They don't have the promises of Scripture. They live by the thinking of the world. Or as he says in verse 13, don't grieve as do the rest who have no hope. That designation, the rest, means unbelievers. We saw a different designation for them back in verse 12. You'll remember that in verse 12 they're called the outsiders. And early it said that they're the ones who don't know God. So this is the rest, the outsiders, the ones who don't know God. And because they don't know God, they don't have any hope. 
So before we discuss this further, I want to stress something here. This passage is not prohibiting the natural sorrow and sense of loss that we feel at the death of a loved one or a friend. That is part of normal human experience. In fact, even Jesus shared that experience. In John 11 again, the death of Lazarus, it says in John 11 verse 35 that Jesus wept. And think about that moment for Jesus. Think about what he knew. He knew he was about to call Lazarus back to life again, and he still wept. He also knew about his own coming death and resurrection that would defeat death for all of his people. And yet, standing before the grave of Lazarus, he grieved. He grieved over all that death represented. Death is an intrusion into our experience. It's a result of the fall and sin. So we're to grieve. That's fine. Also remember this, the same apostle who wrote this letter to Thessalonica is the one who wrote Romans. In Romans 12, 15, he says, weep with those who weep. And certainly one of the times of weeping is when someone we love has died. So of course we grieve. It's normal due to our sense of loss and, and due to how terribly we're going to miss this one who has died. And one more caution, granted, this normal and expected grief can go too far. I mean, if we're not careful and not thinking rightly, we can become self-absorbed in our grief. We can grieve too much due to making too much of our personal loss. But with that understood, yes, it is right and normal to grieve over the intrusion of death into this world and the loss of those we love. The pain of separation is real and it hurts. Loneliness is real and it hurts. But again, that personal sense of loss is not what this passage is about. Paul here is prohibiting sorrow over loss they thought their loved ones who died would suffer. If those loved ones miss the glory of the rapture and being caught up because they died. It's that sorrow that's not for Christians. Because to give way to the wrong kind of grief would be to act like pagans whose lives are best on, based upon worldly perspectives and who therefore don't have the perspective that Scripture offers on any topic. And when you're that living that way, then you'll experience what our verse says. The worldly perspective results, he says, those who have no hope. That's what it results in. That's how the death of loved ones and friends is viewed. When you don't have truth as a foundation. It's an awful, terrifying, hopeless finality. That is because the sorrow of unbelievers cannot be relieved by what Scripture teaches about the future. By the way, when I was reading on all this and just the mindset of the lost world at that time and and the many catacombs that are over there where they would bury people and the inscriptions that would be on some of those catacombs or even on uh, gravestones at times at tombs, one of the popular inscriptions of the ancient world by unbelievers was this. It's on many gravestones. I was not, I became, I am not, I care not. What futility. What hopelessness is produced in the heart of people who don't know and embrace the truth of Scripture 
but Christians do not experience the hopeless grief of unbelievers. We understand we really don't say a final farewell to each other if we're in the Lord. There's going to be a gathering together in the future of all believers to Him. Again, I'll read 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 1. The coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and the gathering together to Him. To put it differently, parting amongst believers in this life is only temporary. So the sorrowing on the part of the Thessalonians for their dead was inexcusable in view of the hope that Christians have. And that hope is due to the revelation we have, especially the revelation we have concerning Jesus, which leads now to Paul's discussion of the second form of grief. Number two, grief from a biblical perspective. Grief from a biblical perspective. The marvelous truth that Christ is going to return someday to gather believers to Himself is based on some unshakable biblical facts, which Paul now outlines. Verse 14, for if we believe that Jesus died and rose again. Stop there, because that simple statement summarizes what Christ did to save us. However, Don't misinterpret the meaning of the little word if there. This is a conditional statement. The term if there is not meant to imply doubt or uncertainty about these facts, the facts of Christ's death and resurrection. Instead, what's being said in this conditional sentence is assuming a truth that's recognized and believed. Therefore, you can translate the little word if since. It really is saying this. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, because we do believe that, then we can accept something else to be true as well. That's how a conditional sentence operates, especially this type. And Paul intentionally even uses the pronoun we here. What he's saying here applies to the the writer, the apostles, the missionaries, the readers, everybody. All Christians embrace Christ's death and Christ's resurrection as the great foundational premise of the Christian faith. And likewise, all Christians accept it as the true and sure foundation of our hope. And those two foundational facts must be kept together. The gospel is not a message just about the cross. Taken in isolation from anything else, it's the message of the cross followed by the resurrection. That's the gospel. And notice that he uses the earthly name of Jesus. That's telling us something else. He doesn't state it as clearly as he does death and resurrection here, but the fact that he used the earthly human name of the Lord here tells us and reminds us that he did something else too. He lived. He lived on earth before the dying and before the rising from the dead. That life that he lived, perfectly obeying the the law of God, is an important part of his experience here on earth as well. So that life then was followed by the past historical event of the cross. Jesus died. It was that death, a voluntary sacrifice on the cross that atoned for all the sins. It paid the debt of all the sins of all his followers. But now notice something. He did not say Jesus fell asleep. He did say that about the believers. But here he says Jesus died. 
you understand the sleep euphemism is not used of Jesus. And the reason is because he really died. He truly died on the cross. He experienced all that death fully is under the wrath of God. Therefore, his death was death in all of its terrible form. It was death in all of its horror due to the reality of man's sin that he took upon himself. But as real and as horrible as his death on the cross was, an important result of his death is that it brought the end of that real death for his people. Or as some say it, Jesus' death resulted in the death of death. By experiencing true death, real death, 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 in our place, Jesus transformed death into something else for believers, sleep. And just as a person who literally sleeps is eventually awakened, just like people here that sleep in the service, I mean, they wake up when we, when we end and it ends and we leave. We get that. A person who literally sleeps is awakened in the same way. There will be a future awakening of believers who have died, as we'll see later in this section. So our chief fear is this death, real death, death, death. And real death is God's judgment of our sin and the eternal punishment that goes with it, that it deserves. But that fear has been removed by Jesus. Jesus bore all the punishment and the wrath for all who believe in Him. Therefore, the sin-atoning death of Christ on the cross is a cause of our hope. It makes us different than the lost world on this topic. But His death was not final. In this simple statement, it says He rose from the grave. And that definite historical event demonstrated then his victory over sin and death. It proved it. The fact is, if Jesus did not actually rise from the grave, our Christian hope crumbles. It falls apart. It has no real justification. But Christ did conquer death by his own resurrection, and thus he guaranteed the resurrection of all who confess their sins and trust in him. That's why the words of Psalm 116, verse 15, ring so true to the Christian's heart. The believer's heart, Psalm 116, verse 15, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death, the sleep of his godly ones, his people. So let's quickly summarize what happens when believers die. Their soul, their spirit, sometimes the scripture calls it soul, sometimes spirit, same entity, the inner man. Their soul goes immediately into conscious fellowship in the presence of the Lord. Fellowship with the Lord. While their body, at that moment, begins temporarily sleeping, awaiting to be awakened at the rapture. And it doesn't matter what form that body is in, young, old, whether it's been buried, cremated, lost at sea, destroyed in a bombing, decayed, so on. Regardless of its condition, there is a future for the body. And again, that's something we'll discuss in more detail in another study. For now, Paul sets up in the rest of verse 14 what he will later say, though, about the body. Verse 14, 
ends. Even so, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. So look what is stressing that God will do. He's the central actor in this statement. And what he's definitely going to do is something connected with him. The him pronoun refers to Jesus the Son. But an interpreted decision must be made about the intent of that verb, bring. That verb can be translated either bring or take, either one. Here's the question. The question is one of direction of travel. The question is, is Jesus bringing from heaven people to earth or taking people from earth to heaven? You have to decide that in this passage. If the direction of travel is to earth, and this is referring to the many souls who have died, souls that are in heaven, and the point would be that Jesus brings many souls with him when he returns. Some would say this is his second coming to earth. There they meet their resurrected bodies. If the direction is to heaven, this is a reference to the glorified bodies of the people who will have died when this event happens. And the point would be that Jesus will take with him, bring with him to heaven those on earth who have died, that is, deceased Christians. This would therefore refer to the rapture. When Jesus comes in clouds, in the air, and gathers up, as Scripture says, the dead and the living, and takes all those believers back to heaven. John 14 again, I go and prepare a place for you. I will come again and receive you to myself, so that where I am, there you may be also. For a time, he takes them there. So which is it? Well, in most cases, Scripture, certainly context, helps determine which sense the author has in mind. And that's true here. In this section, the context is what we've already discussed, the concern of the Thessalonians about those who have died and their relationship to the rapture. Plus, as we've noted, the idea of sleep is used here in this passage as a synonym for dead bodies. The right view is the second one. This is a comforting promise that those who had died would not miss this gathering together, the rapture. Those who had died would also be taken to heaven. To put it another way, they would not be left behind just because they were not alive when the gathering takes place. So the rapture is not just for those who will be alive at the event. It includes those who are asleep. More details about that later in the paragraph. But the bottom line is that biblical grief is based upon some foundational facts. The life of Christ that included then his death and his resurrection. As Jesus died and was boldly bodily raised, so God will raise up the bodies of those who have died and bring them to heaven with Jesus so that their souls are reunited with their glorified bodies. However, notice in verse 14 that this is discussing in this passage only those deceased people who have died in Jesus. Those who have fallen asleep in Jesus, meaning dead bodies. This is for true believers. They're the ones in Jesus. They're the ones in union with Him. And therefore, they're the ones given the comfort of this passage, the comfort of being gathered up by the Lord. 
Now, yes, we don't have time to do a thorough study here, but yes, Scripture also teaches that the bodies of unbelievers will someday be resurrected as well. This will take place at the future great white throne judgment found in Revelation chapter 20. At the end of the thousand-year-long millennial kingdom, it's all laid out in, in order in the book of Revelation. At that judgment, they will receive their eternal bodily punishment. Listen to Revelation 20. I'll read several verses, starting verse 5. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection, verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat upon it and from from whose presence earth and heaven fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne and books were opened and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. Verse 14, then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is a future event. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire, resurrected for judgment eternally. Do you know the resurrection of the bodies of both the saved and unsaved is prophesied in the Old Testament? I read only a snippet of Daniel 12, verse 2. A moment ago, I'll read the whole verse. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake, these to everlasting life, but others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. John 5 verse 29 mentions a resurrection of life and a resurrection of judgment. So even though believers and unbelievers will alike be raised at some point, they will experience radically different results. Paul wrote this to comfort them, and it did. They understood better. They didn't have to be worried about those who had died. And that comfort the Scripture offers differs absolutely from the hopeless grief of an unbelieving world who doesn't have any standard to go back to for truth, for direction, for thinking. As one writer said, it's our knowledge that shapes our grief so that we are encouraged by hope. Through His death and His resurrection, Jesus has disarmed death. I love what Paul wrote to Timothy in 2 Timothy 1.10, our Savior abolished death, real death, and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. No wonder Paul wrote these words in 1 Corinthians 15, which we hear at Grayside Services a lot. 1 Corinthians 15, 55, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Jesus robbed death of its victory. There is no sting for us. Let me just leave you with four conclusions of all this, just for our lives and daily living. Here's conclusion number one. All four of these are thoughts that are important from this passage. Conclusion number one, knowledge is important. Knowledge is important. Paul told them he didn't want them to be uninformed. That's because the answer to questions of doubt and confusion and anxiety and distress and grief is found somewhere. It's found in God's Word. So many problems in the experience of believers today do stem either from an ignorance of biblical truth or a refusal to study it and learn it. So that the great need of God's people is the same thing, the careful teaching of Scripture. Knowledge is important. That's one conclusion doesn't want us to be uninformed. Conclusion number two, how we view our bodies is important. 
how we view our bodies is important. The fact that our bodies have a future, the fact that our bodies will be raised and glorified should transform how we think about our bodies now. Think of it this way. The fact of resurrection conveys dignity to every person's body. So we should seek to keep our bodies holy unto the Lord. He's not done with them yet. Romans 6, verse 5, For if we have become united with Him in the likeness of His death, and we have, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of His resurrection. Verse 12, therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, your body that's going to go to sleep someday. Don't let sin reign in it so that you obey its lust. Why? Because God cares about the body or else he wouldn't do all this. We don't have the view that, well, it's only the soul that matters. What we do in our body doesn't matter. It does matter. How we view our bodies is important. Conclusion number three, how we grieve is important. How we grieve is important. It's important for our testimony in this world. It's important for our testimony that we don't grieve like those who don't know Christ. In fact, our whole attitude toward death must be different from those in the world. That's why my father wanted to keep giving me those lessons. Our attitude toward death must be different. Death is not a defeat, it's not the end. We look forward to being reunited with friends and loved ones who are in Christ. When they're here, we'll see them again. And those individuals, those believers who have suffered so much physically to sickness and disease and so forth and the ravaging of their own bodies, what a thought to know that that ravaged body that went to sleep is someday going to be changed and glorified. Let's focus on those realities while we live here so that we live with a biblical view of death so we don't grieve like those who have no hope. Eric Alexander, great preacher from Scotland, suggests that believers actually should never speak of someone dying, another believer, as sudden death. You know, they died suddenly. It wasn't sudden death. He said it's better to call it sudden glory. My mother just experienced sudden glory, and so forth. It's true of those who die trusting in Jesus. The last conclusion, number four, something else is important. The most important, knowing Christ is important. Knowing Christ is important. It's only those who are in Jesus who have this promise. It's only those who have confessed their guilt and who have turned to Jesus for forgiveness and new life who have the sure hope of of this kind of life to come. So it's urgent now that sinners come to know Jesus by faith and receive eternal life. Jesus himself said this in John 11, 25, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. He'll be living even if his body goes to sleep, and it will, because he knows me and he'll be in my presence. And someday, that soul will be reunited even with a glorified body. This is the only true hope if you've come to Jesus and you've come to him now in this life for salvation, humbling yourself in faith 
and trusting Him alone as the Lord of your life and seeking the forgiveness and eternal life that only He can grant. He grants this to those only to call upon His name to be saved. Let's pray. Father, help us to live in light of these truths of what a Christian's view of death really is, what a Christian's view of the body is, of the future, so that we are living with those who, as those who have hope. And may our friends and loved ones around us who don't know Christ see that hope and ask us to give an account for it. I do pray for anyone here who can't say, yes, I'm in Christ. I pray that today they would open their hearts, you would open their hearts so that they might believe and be saved. In his name we pray, amen.